second edition of the Nick Bradley Racing Podcast. How many people have played the fancy music by now? And it's over to me, yours truly. <laughs> we'll lose a silly voice. Right, so if anybody listened to the first podcast, they will know that uh, what the purpose of this is to kind of review the runners, preview the runners, um, talk about things that are going on in racing. Um, last week, sorry, the last podcast, which was two weeks ago, I gave a couple of selections. Um, we had a winner and a second from two selections, which was a little bit frustrating, particularly as if you followed the racing on that card in Ireland the day after, um, the ammo horses pretty much won every race. And then I see they did again this weekend as well down at Cork. Um, yeah. So I will try and put some selections up, um, but it won't always be possible. I'll, I'll, I'm going to give selections where I see the selections that are worth giving rather than having to give them. Um, but we'll start by reviewing our runners. We'll look back at what we've run so far. Um, obviously, the season is just getting going. It's very much a case of some, you know, a lot of these horses cases getting their first one out of the way. Um, the trainer mindset is hugely important when um, thinking about um, how the horses are going to run. So, for example, I've already mentioned the ammo horses. So Robson's got in his mind that he wants these horses to be 100% fit when they hit the track, or as close to it as he can get it. They've galloped several times at home, and then they come to the track, and they're fitter and sharper, mentally more forward than many of the other horses, which is why Amos ran 10 horses so far and 7 or 8 at the both one. Um, and the hat should be taken off uh, to Robson and his team for being able to do that, because nobody else has been able to do that. Um so, you know, what they're doing is, is, is spot on. Um, that said, it will not be the case for the, throughout the course of the season, but it certainly is the case now. But things will change. Um, looking at today's race, for example, we had Masporda running, running at Pontifrat. Masporda uh, ran really well on debut at York and then ran um, a race at the Queen Mary that she disappointed on softer ground. Um, she had an, a knee injury thereafter. She's taking a long time to get her um, back to the stage where she can run again. And today was all about literally getting a run out of the way. Um, and that is going to be the case with a lot of these horses coming up. Um, I think just moving on from Masperda slightly, um, Tim used to be, we ran a couple of horses for him yesterday. If you if you backed all Tim's horses in April, I'm sure you'd be miles behind. If you backed them all from kind of the 10th of May onwards, um, that's when they start winning, basically, and then you, you, you'd be miles in front. And that comes down to the trainer's mindset in terms of when they want their horses to peak and their ability to make them peak at certain times of the year. So, for example, um, the training facilities that you've got available, the weather, they're all big factors. And then the mindset of the trainer is hugely, hugely important. What they choose to do with the horses each day. It's not the same trainer per trainer. It varies hugely. Um so, yeah, today we had Masperd run at Pontifrat, and all we wanted was um, to have a, a solid run, come out of the race, be sound in the morning, and hopefully um, then go on to, to bigger and better things. This made, uh, sorry, is it made no novice? This novice today was pretty hot. The winner is a brother to Kiyomaro, who was a very good horse. Uh, I think she was second or third in the month off. The winner, uh, the second, I'm pretty sure Kevin thought was a good thing. 
The third, I remember that, the sales that cost a few quid, if memory serves. Just pressing my buttons. 140 grand. I booked two. Uh, the fourth was rated 85. Tim Easter because, um, as I previously mentioned, I would imagine that ours will come on plenty for the run. Fifth is rated 75. And then we finished seventh. We were out in the middle of the track. People don't realise this, but where you race is hugely important. Um, Hugh Taylor was on to me today about the fact that all the horses that were running well at Pontefract generally racing against a far rail. Um, I suppose it was drawn 10 and was always three or four off the rail. So she should be marked up for that. Um, but it's just a case of getting through the race and hopefully she's sound in the morning. Um, I wasn't all disappointed. Um, she's sound in the morning. I'll take that as a good result because it's it's not about today. It was, it's about days in the future, all being well. We had Lucia Joy run at the weekend, uh, Wolverhampton, in a seriously hot race. Um, now, I, people click on it and say, oh, it's a Wolverhampton novice. It was a Wolverhampton novice, um, but there were three horses there that I think are very good. And I would bet that they'll all be rated 85 by June the 15th. Those three horses were the first three home. Esh Tora, Simon Crisford's, was backed in from 6-1 to one into 15-8, to eight, clearly won. Masha here was a two-year-old filly that did a very good debut for Shadwell and then was sold as part of their dispersal. Um, and Lucia Joy. I'm just looking at the Racing Post ratings. They've given it 65, 62 and 59. I mean, this is the stupidity of the Racing Post. This is a seriously hot race. I will guarantee that all, all those figures are £20 too low. Now, they'll be going on times, and it was a slowly run race. And because it was a slowly run race, the outsiders finished in the same heap. Um, Callisto Moon was in that race. I'm, I'm certain Callisto Moon is not a horse that we should be following going forward. But because it was a slowly run race, the outsiders finished close up. And when they start going on £3 a length and all that rubbish, it's... Um, it creates obscure results when you get slowly run races or really strongly run races. Um, but in terms of following horses going forward, Eshtora will be an 85 plus horse. I have no doubt in my mind. As will Masha here, as will Lucia Joy. In slowly run races, it appears to be on the front because if the slowly run, the horses kick, the horse in front hasn't run out of energy, whereas the horse at the back also haven't run out of energy, but they've got ground to make up. And if the average speed of the race isn't dropping like it would do in a strongly run race, the horses at the front can keep going. Um, those three, those three horses are definitely horses to follow, for in not in novices and more importantly in handicaps, depending on what mark they get. But they'll all be eighty-five plus fillies. I have no doubt at all. Uh, Callisto Moon, I think uh, we'll see. It's taken out of training at some point. Um, so that was Lucia Joy. Now, we were, we nobody used to know it was a slowly run race going into the race, but um, it was pretty obvious halfway, and we were in a bad place. Um, she ran fine, but things didn't go away. But hopefully, um, at some point in the future, things will go away. Um, you know, that's horse racing for you. And then we've had a couple of two-year-olds run. So we had a um, comedian leader debut at Kempton in a race where two horses were backed off the boards, the Bowie horse and the Paul Cole horse. And then the Gay Kellaway horse clearly um, made all, as I suspected would happen in that race. I, I expected the horse that the lead would win. Um, we tried to lead, but we were sat second early doors. 
We ran a little bit flat. We were keen in the first furl and we finished fourth. I think two nice two-year-olds went past us and there was a nice two-year-old in front. Gay Calamaro was adamant that Shares would win after the race. I'm sure she said it before the race to, to various people, but obviously not to me. Um, but yeah, Communion leads ran well and she could pick up a novice somewhere on the line in the month of April. She's due to work tomorrow with a, another two-year-old in Alice's yard and um, we'll see her on a track somewhere next week for her second run. Jackie Chase debuted at uh, Redcliffe to me to be drawn eight of eight. Now, this is a big issue that people don't realise. When you've got a field of two-year-olds making their debut, generally the horses on the wing, when the stalls open, don't follow the pack. They jump out away from the pack. Now, if they've got a rail one side, that helps keep them straight. But Redcliffe... The stalls were in the middle of the track. The stalls opened, and our filly jumped out to the right. And then Duran is a little bit in no man's land because the race, after 50 yards, is developing where low numbers were. He's drawn eight of eight. He's stuck to that riding position. He could have switched in behind. I don't think it would have made too much difference, but he was eight of eight. A huge inconvenience. Um, and that horse was beaten six lengths. She will finish much closer next time out. Um, the David O'Meara horse won first time out. I think if you look back the last three or four years, David's managed to do this with his two-year-olds um, several times, but after April and May, they don't quite go on like somebody like Tim Easterby's horses would do. Um, it's a, it's Trainers do it different ways, and it's it's not a criticism. It's just a, an observation, a characteristic of the way their horses run. Um, so that's the review of the horses that have run so far. Harry will now play some fancy music and we might go into the preview. Okay, so we've reviewed the runners. Now we're going to preview the runners and look forward. And we'll start with the two-year-olds. So our first two-year-old runner, well, no, one of our two-year-old runners next week will be comedian leader. Second start, huge advantage when running against horses who are making their debut. In an ideal world, you want to be running these horses on turning tracks or sharp, speedy tracks because then that experience makes so much more of a difference. Um, she is going to have... and She's got an entry at Pontifact, which is five furlong under Bend, and she's got an entry at Windsor. Alice has got another horse in at Windsor. Um, I suspect she'll go to Pontifact. Um, depending on where she's drawn, I think she is. it will be a great bet for finishing the three. Where she finishes in the three depending on draw position and what else is in the race. Bojink is a two-year-old we bought our Tally Ho. She um, has worked three times now. I think she's going to work once more at the weekend. She has got an entry at Windsor on Monday. She'll have an entry at Newmarket on Tuesday. And we will see her somewhere next week. Um, I'd be pretty hopeful that she will run to a higher level early doors i.e. on debut. Clear to Land is the Dragon Pulse filly that's at George Bowie's. She has um, worked three times, and each time she's taken a big step forward. We're going to try and run her on some soft ground. Dragon Pulse is in theory going soft ground, but I need to check that before I, I do make a declaration. Um, she's taken a huge step forward each time. Um, she She's working to a good level, um, and I would expect her to be pretty close, depending on where we run her, pretty close to winning. And then we've got a couple at Grant Tewers. 
who we'll potentially see in the next couple of weeks. Um, the Cotta Glory filly with bottom tally her. She went to a race course gallop today, and we will see her on the track at somewhere in the next two weeks. Um, and Mercy, the Born to See filly at Grants, she is on target for Beverly on the 21st of April. Um, we may also see the Twilight Lady filly at Ripon that week as well. And then if we look at the three-year-olds that are going to get started off. Um, so Carl is going to run fillies like Sophie Star, Fast Response, Honey Sweet, Gilded. Now I expect all of these horses to need a run. Um, Carl does plenty with them at home, but if you look at statistically and year on year, his horses improve a lot first and second run, and they, they then improve again second to third run. So it's just a case that some some horses getting the first run out of the way. Um, when owners go racing, you know if they if they do slightly fall below your expectation on debut, I wouldn't worry too much. But if they're doing that on third or fourth run, then it's obviously more of a concern. Um, Guild is likely to run in France in the uh, Group 3 Siggy. Honey Sweet is going to go for the listed handicap, listed free handicap at Newmarket, all being well. Fast response and Sophie Star on tomorrow at Nottingham in the conditions race against Colts, which won't make it an easy task for them. Phillies against Colts, you'd much rather run Phillies against Colts in July rather than in April. Um, the Phillies are just in, in better health at that time. You can see by the weather, it's beginning to warm up, but we're, we're not in summer yet. And then we've got Eldrick Jones. He is going to either go to uh, Newmarket next week or he could go to Newcastle on Friday for the opening race on the all weather, uh, Championship Finals Day. And of course, we've got Capu going there as well. He'll take on El Cabello. El Cabello will be very hard to beat. Um, best chance of a winner next week. Right now, I would say one of the two-year-olds, uh, Bojink, Clear to Land, Mercy, Ascending Glory, depending on what lines up. Obviously, we haven't seen any fields yet. But those would be the best chances. Comedian leader, depending on where it's drawn and what else lines up. But the two-year-olds, I just think the three-year-olds are going to need a run in the majority of cases this year. Okay, so now we're at the section where um, we're going to discuss um, aspects of racing. And plenty of people have sent in um, things that they'd like me to discuss, talk about, which is great, and I appreciate that. Um, and we'll do our best to be open, honest, and straightforward, and frank, and tell you exactly how we, how, I, how I see it. Um, I would be interested in Nick's views on Stoll's training for two years and how the trainers he uses may vary in their approach. Okay, so um, I don't think there's a right and wrong. Um, there is um, sometimes perhaps you should they should. Um, determine the level of practice in terms of the um, the race the horse is going to run in. So, for example, Comedian Leader was running at Kempton last week and I was of the opinion that the horse that led would win. Therefore, I mentioned to Alice the day before that she should do plenty of stalls work with her. In fact, I don't know if I did or I didn't mention that to her, but I think she sent me a video showing that she was. Um, I knew that it was going to be a big, a big thing there. Kempton's similar to Chester, you know, generally if you've got a two-year-old that pings the glitz there, it's a huge advantage, grabs that inside rail, and then it's so much easier for, for the two-year-old thereafter. Um, so if you're looking to win, win, 
with a two-year-old race around Chester, I think the stalls practice is imperative. Um, however, if you're thinking a bigger picture, more down the line, then it's less of an issue, less of a situation, less of a thing to think about. I know one trainer I've used in the past um, only walks into the stalls on the morning of the day before the debut. So a horse wouldn't see a stable, wouldn't see a start, starting stalls until the day before the race. Um, their thinking being that um, it, they don't want to upset them or create potential situations where there's going to be an issue. Um, generally, the horses then, when they leave the stalls in the race, they miss the break by, I don't know, 10, 15 yards compared to the field on average and are in behind early. Now, if you're running at a track like Doncaster, um, where you've got a big straight track on Newcastle and it's they don't tend to go too hard early and you've got plenty of time to catch up, it's, that's fine. Um, but as I say, when it's on a turning track, it is a bit, bit of an issue. Um, and Carl Burke um, has already... So he starts off by walking them through the stalls and then as they get close to the debuts, they do stalls work generally the day after they've done uh, galloping at home. It's kind of an, an easy day. They've sort of done the fast work and then the day after they'll do stalls work. And Carl seemed to handle the stalls pretty well. Um, I've generally ended up with my team of trainers based on the decisions they make. And one of the decisions is how they put them through the stalls and therefore how the horses race. Uh, in their opening races. Generally, the stalls is less of an issue once a horse had a couple of runs, then they all kind of break equally or equally as random. Um, how did you select that your trainers initially and then decide which horses go where? Um, okay, so the most important thing, I think, every time is the trainer's mindset. Um, I think there's two ways that trainers can... Um, have a successful business one they can earn money from the owners or two they can earn money with the owners and the latter is very much the approach that i adopt and want to adopt and want my trainers to adopt um, so for example i'm looking for successful yards who don't charge fortunes who make good decisions um, who when they go to the sales they work hard um, tend not to rely on agents too much. Um, I think when you do that, you in any scenario, when you, you pass the responsibility of spending large monetary amounts to somebody else, it kind of dilutes your potential for success. Um, the trainers I use tend to try uh, honest, straightforward, good communicators, good with media, um, sending photos and videos, not too expensive, tend to have a smaller chip on the shoulder or, let, or no chip on the shoulder. Um, and people, when you go to the yard, will tell you the truth. We were at Carl Burke's at the weekend and we were sort of running through the horses and the horses, Carl was, wasn't very bullish about 75% of them, but the horses he was describing were whole horses rated 90 plus, um, whereas other trainers would be swinging from the rafters. Um, so what, what I'm trying to say is somebody who's down to earth, straightforward, who doesn't get too carried away and tends to rely on facts rather than fiction. When attending the sales, how do you decide on a suitable price for a horse when making a bid? Okay, so first thing is uh, you know who consigns each horse. 
that is going to give you some indication as to what the price of the horse is going to be. Um, now, for somebody looking out outside looking in, that won't make any sense to you. But I've been to, going to these sales 15, 20 years, and I know that when I go to the sales, um, consignor X generally um, horses sell for high prices or consignor Y and horses generally sell for low prices. So that's the starting point. Um, then you look at the breeding. Um, and obviously we, we tend to rely on buying fillies. I, I'll consider the residual value, i.e. if the horse is unraced, what will it be worth? We had a filly that was um, the sealing job. There was a Galileo Gold filly, sister to uh, three stakes horses. She was no good on the track. We gave 20-odd thousand for her. She sold it after two runs. We got 20-odd thousand for her. Um, so I thought that was a no-brainer to buy her at the price that we did at the yearning sales. It didn't work out. But had it worked out, the rewards would have been huge. And because it didn't work out, the rewards, sorry, the losses weren't as big as they could have been, obviously, if we got carried away at the yearling prices. Um, yeah, so that's that's the thing. And then it comes down to how much you want the horse. Um, so, for example, if I go and see 100 horses, I might leave 20 on the list. And of those 20, I would there would be some degree of pecking order within those 20. Now, I've found before that horse number one out of 100 on my list will not be the best horse, but the best horse will be somewhere in that 20. Um, and then I try and adopt the darts, to a, darts at the board mentality, i.e. I wouldn't spend 100,000 trying to buy the best, but I try and, I'd maybe try and spend 20,000 five times buying five of the 20 that were, that were on the list. Um, I think that increases the odds of success um, for the investor. Um, yeah, and then price. I know pretty much straight away, so you find out the reserve price, what that's going to be. That can be a killer straight away. Um, and also the price comes down to who else wants it. So, for example, if I'm on a horse that Sheikh Mohammed's bidding on or Amo Racing are bidding on, I can't buy it. Whatever it price makes, I can't buy it. It's, it's, it's a waste of time. So if there's 100 horses in sale and Ammo have got going to bid on 20 of them and Godolphin going to bid another 20 of them, my pool of horses now goes from 100 to 60. Um, there's lots of other owners. I'm just using that as an example. But I tend to work, I tend to buy the horses that, or the, the, the bigger operations with the deep, deeper pockets don't particularly, you know, haven't, haven't left on the list. Um, and yet, it... <laughs> You always try and keep the prices low and therefore the odds of, if you are successful, the odds are so much better. Mystery Angel was second in the Oaks. If we'd have paid 200000 for her and we sold her for 500000 it would have been a success, but it wouldn't have been the success that we had since we bought for $22,000. Um, so the starting price is a huge thing. and it's a bit, you, when, when you give the, the large amounts in the ring to begin with, there is a lot more pressure on and there's a lot less scope for um, success. Um, I get it right plenty of times, but I get it wrong plenty of times as well. And if I keep the prices low, then it's not so so big a hit. Um, yeah, when when we do get it wrong, we will get it wrong. If you could make three changes to racing now, what would they be? Um, 
Okay, so that's a good question. I would have prize money levels increased through um, the way prize money is funded. If you go to places like Hong Kong and Australia, it's all tote betting, and all the money bet goes uh, into a pool. The winnings are paid out depending on how much is bet on each horse, and a percentage of the amount bet goes towards prize money. It's very simple. We should adopt that in this country. We don't because they, the, the powers that be haven't got the brain cells to, to organise it. Um, bookmakers in the UK don't want to take bets on horse racing. If you walked into a bookmaker and bet asked for a £100 bet on a horse, you would probably be offered £20. Um, so it's like a token gesture. Um, so the way that the betting market in the UK is at the moment is hopeless, um, and therefore, as a result, racing is poorly funded. Um, the entry fees for horses to enter races is ridiculous also. I would imagine if prize money stayed still over the last 20 years, I would imagine entry fees have doubled. Um, I thought about entering Lucia joining the Yorks this morning. The entry fee was going to be 2000 odd quid today, and it would end up being around £5,500 by the time we come to run. Um, ridiculous. Um, and... The whole Weatherby's BHA setup, I think it costs about £400 to name a horse. Um, we get monthly charges for having accounts open. It's poorly organised. It's it's a badly run machine. Um, and somebody needs to take a, grab a hold of it before it self-destructs. Um, yeah, some somebody with a bit of brain who he, is, is wise to the issues that are going on in horse racing. Um, third, third is situation. Um, prize money earned. If if a horse wins a thousand pounds, the owner actually only gets seven hundred odd of it, seven hundred twenty, seven hundred fifty of it. Um, a percentage goes to the jockey, percentage goes to the trainer, and so on and so forth. But the entry fee. Is hundred percent cost of the owner. Um, so, for example, if you enter a horse for a race that costs a thousand pounds, you win a thousand pounds. Actually, the owner is out of pocket. That shouldn't be the case. Um, and trainers' percentages are too high. Jockeys' percentages are too high. Um, or they should take into account the fact that the entry fees are so big to begin with. Uh, you're a successful gambler. What advice would you give to others? So, yeah, I was a successful gambler um, around 2000 to 2015, um, and it was so much easier then to get a bet on compared to now. Gambling now is, um, if, there was, if there was 300 professional gamblers then, there's 30,000 of them now. So it's a lot more competitive. Bookmakers um, are monitoring bets that they take so much more carefully. Um, I would definitely suggest pick something that you think you can focus on. For example, I focus on the two-year-old Phillies market. Don't wander from that. Stick to that um, and do that well. Don't try and do too many things. At the end of the day, the number at the bottom of the spreadsheet is the most important one. So if you if you spread yourself too thin, you can end up doing a lesser job. Um, watch. If, if it's going to be horse racing, make sure you're watching every race. Don't spend too much time looking at pedigrees and um, 
breeding and things like that. Watch the races, see what's actually going on, see what decisions have been made in the race. Um, time analysis, study course biases, um, things like that are, are very, very important. Um, but again, only sp- try and specialise rather than um, yeah, trying to be a jack of all trades. What have been your biggest mistakes at sales and how has your strategy in buying changed since you stuck out on your own? Biggest mistake? I would always think of horses that I bought based on pedigree um, early on I've made a couple of mistakes there we, the Frankel filly we bought a couple of years ago for 100 and odd thousand that didn't work out um, having said that when we, had, when we had her on our yard before she went off into training would I have bought her again? Absolutely. Um, yeah, don't get too carried away with pedigree. Keep prices low. I remember buying a breezer for 100000 that breezed really well and was lame after the breeze. Um, again, the, the biggest mistakes are where I've spent too much money. So I always try and keep prices to a minimum. My strategy is always changing. Um, it's always trying to adapt um any so my 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 buying process for the year in sales next year will be based on the success that we have this year and previous uh, knowledge so i'll always go and look at every year and fill it sold um but for example i may rule out um if if for example this year our horses are running well in may and june and not running so well in um september and october I'll try and buy a different type of horse um, more at the sales. Um, I think we've got four or five two-year-olds ready to run now, maybe a couple more. But that's as many as we should have right now. Um, so that's about right. I mean, the success on the track comes down to a little bit of luck and, and how you get on. But, um, yeah, I just try and balance the so that I'm buying the right number of horses for the right, you know, for the, the season in its entirety. Um, but also trying to keep prices low. I'll say I'll say that I've said that already, but I'll always say that. Have you ever thought about pin hooking? Yep, I've uh, done that before. Did it successfully. Um, I went to the yearly sales one year with two hundred thousand, a full sales of two hundred thousand, and we turned it to about four hundred thousand. We bought six or seven, um, and I stopped doing that because I saw the full market was so competitive, um, and there were very clever guys doing it and then i thought well let's try and do the breeding side of it and get the phone get the same the same stock but at a smaller cost um as it's worked out i don't know which is be which which i should have continued to do there's there's different pros and cons against each one but i found that i've had success at both and the thing is, when, you, when you're doing the mares, um, I've also had a success buying um, shares in stallions. Um, and that's a, a, another income stream that, that you can generate. Um, I had a, a, a breeding right. I was one of the f- few people that had a breeding right in Memas. I wish I still had a, a new bear. They were sold for, for large profits, but they're probably worth a lot more now. But it was just a... I, I, I moved from pinhooking to breeding. Um, 
partly through I wanted to have a go at it, and now I think I th I think the full sales are very strong, but the mare sales are weak. Um, and right now, I'm glad that we're breeding rather than pinocking. What could racehorses do to improve the owner's race day experience? Plenty. Um, I went to Pontefract today. They did everything right, right in terms of the people there. Um, um, dining was a little bit limited. We were all kind of stood in a, a wide corridor eating our lunch rather than you know sitting down having a, a proper meal uh, in a in a, in a restaurant. Um, Red Key yesterday. I mean, it was. It was a, I don't think they realise. Um, Things they do. Um, we were restricted to six six badges per horse, um, and lunches would have been likewise. And if you've got a syndicate and the seven people want to go, then unfortunately Red can't, can't accommodate you. I.e., they couldn't. They can't provide you with seven years. It's to be six badges and then one general admission badge. I think that's crazy. Um, I don't think they really understand where who's paying for racing, who's who's putting on the show that that they're part of um, lots of race courses do a very good job um, but just you know thinking about all the aspects that an owner enjoys there's it's ridiculous some of the things that they do in terms of restrictions restricting on badges restricting on lunches uh, restricting on parade um, ring entrances I mean that's crazy um, they'll, they'll refer to a safety issue but I mean, come on. Um, mating plans. How do I decide my mating plans? Right, so the first thing we do is we think about what the mares produced previously um, and which foals have worked, which foals haven't worked. When a foal's born, we log down various measurements. The bone, which is the, um, the best way of doing it, is through the circumference of the um, skeleton under the knee. This is where flesh is its, its thinnest. So therefore, it gives you an indication how much bone would be in the skeleton as a whole. Um, and we do this in it's centimetres. Um, and generally it ranges between 12 to 16 centimetres. And fillies would generally be slightly lower than colts. But that, that figure gives me an idea of what kind of stallion are. I want to be looking at going forward. Ideally, we aim for 15 with, with Colts, 14 to 15 with fillies. If you get a horse that's a mare that's con continually to produce um, foals that have got a circumference of 12, then you need a bigger, stronger, meatier, heavier stallion um, who's going to put a bit more um, pound, you know, a bit more substance on their foals. Um, you've always got to be aware of um so generally we try and breed for speed so you don't want to be breeding slow and slow as a rule um it's very hard for um the we're not the lesser end but the mid we're probably in the middle zone the middle zone to compete with higher higher end um, breeders to win races like the derby and things like that because our ammunition is so it's, it's more restricted um we've got a smaller budget we've got lesser mares so we try and focus on something we're doing well. So I'm deliberately trying to buy um, faster mares at the moment. Um, faster mares generally going to produce horses that are going to be running sooner 
therefore more chance of getting more runs on the track and therefore more winners. That's a theory. Talio have done it very well in Ireland, uh, which we've understood have done it very well in England. Um, so we look at what the mayor's produced before. We look at successful crosses, so I go on to Racing Post. I type in the name of um, the broodmare stallion. So, for example, I'm going to type in Lop de Vega now. Up it pops, 2007, Irish. And then on there, I click on stud record. I click on Damsire. And then you've got various uh, headings at the top, and I click on Sire, and it organises it alphabetically. And then I will scroll, so it groups all the Air Force Blues together, all the Australians together, and so forth. So you can, this is the cross. So, for example, I'm looking at four horses where... Australia was the father, and Lop de Vega was the father of the mother. And I can see that's produced um, a 92, a 71, a 65, and a 49. That, in my eyes, wouldn't be seen as a successful cross. So I would scroll down, and I would keep going. I'm looking at the numbers on the right-hand side of the screen, and I've got to a point here where I've got uh, Lop de Vega mare, Kodiak sire. And it's, it, the cross has happened three times. It's produced... 104, 94, and a horse that's raced abroad looking at this. Yeah, raced in America, but it's quite good. So anyway, it's, it, our two, it's 104, 94. So that's a, that's a, a course that's worked before. You know, two out of three is very good. Um, so that's Lop de Vega on Kodiak. So I'd then consider all the Daniel stallions, Kodiak's by Daniel. Um, and I would keep going down that route and see if there was a trend um, for that cross. Um, all the time thinking, right, if, my, if I've got a big mare, Kodiak generally throws smaller horses, two-year-old precocious types, I wouldn't want my mare to be too small for Kodiak. Um, yeah, that's, that's the general process. Um, you'd look at the mare in confirmation in front, if she was towing out, towing in. So if you've got a mare that's towing in, you wouldn't go to a stallion that's towing in because chances are you're going to get a horse that's towing in. You want the horse that's correct in front. If you've got a mare that's towing out, you wouldn't be in a rush to go to a stallion that's towing out. Um, we always try and breed for 15-3, 16 hands. So if your mare stands at 16-3, you want to be going to a small, speedy stallion. If you've got a mare that's 15 hands, you want to be going to a big, substantial stallion. It's always... It's the same in France, they always breed for a mile. Well, that's because the mile is the middle distance in France. Well, over here in the UK, if you think about two rolls or three rolls, the middle distance is probably seven furlongs, six, seven furlongs, which would be, that would be about what, what I'd be aiming to breed for. So I've got an example here. So I've got a mare called Everlove. And she's a Brazilian six-time Grade One winner, um, and she's a 19-year-old mare who's will be turning 20 this year. Um, and if you type her into Racing Post, you'll see um, that it brings up her um, progeny, her race form, progeny sales, etc., etc. Um, she has so far produced a horse weight 107, 105, 92, and then some lesser lights. Her best three were by Poet's Voice, Shamadel and Jubawi. Poet's Voice is the son of Jubawi. Jubawi is obviously Jubawi and Shamadel 
is on a different line to Jabawi. So I would be looking to cover her with a son of Shamadal or a son of Jabawi. Um, we um, had great success at the sales where we managed to achieve 180,000 for a son of New Bay out of her. It was bought by Godolphin. Um, and she, um, New Bay is obviously by Jabawi. So that mare this year has gone to Space Blues, who was a very good horse on the track last year, won the Breeders' Cup, won various group ones. Um, he stands in Ireland. He is by Jabawi as well. Um, but again, I wouldn't rule out um, going to a, a Shamadol line um, as well. That was the thinking with, with her. We have another mare called Cressy, C-R-E-C-Y. Cressy has produced um, two good horses today. One's over in Japan and one raced in the UK. Just waiting for Racing Post to load it up. Cressy GB 2009, so I'm 13 now. Freya Bella, people remember her on the track last year. She ran on the Cornwallis. And then there was a horse called Long Bowman, who was over in Japan, who spent 50000 in prize money by Nathaniel. Um, so when I t came to doing make decisions for, for this mare, two different lines. Nathaniel is the Galileo line. Kodiak's the Dana line. So I had to choose which route to go down. Um, physically, I liked them both. Um, this time, I plumped to go down the Galileo line. So I wanted another son of Galileo. As Long Bowman has reached a certain level, um, and Long Bowman's name is Nathaniel, I went to go for Galileo Stallion, but not specifically the same one. So Cressy um, has been called by Valgeist um, and is in full as of 6th of March. Um, so that's an example of how we did it on that one. And the final section we're going to discuss today on podcast is the breeze-ups. Um, the breeze-ups. Somebody asked me a question. Um, any good horses that you've bid on that got away? Well, yeah, it's absolutely hundreds. Um, thinking about the breeze-ups last year, I was on Perfect Power. I was on Twilight Jet. I was on plenty of good horses. Uh, sorry, plenty of bad horses that I've since forgotten about. Um I remember being on Ade when he was at the sales. I remember being on Memas when he was at the sales. So it's there's there's plenty of good horses that have got away, but the Breeze Ups is obviously a, a place where we've done well last year and in previous years. And it's a sales. I go there with plenty of confidence because experience tells me that I tend to be looking for the right things. Um, breeze Ups start next week at the Craven. The horses Breeze on the Monday and sell Tuesday, Wednesday, and then sales move to Doncaster the following week and so on. Um, most important thing when doing the breeze-ups is uh, watching each breeze. You have to stand or view them from the same place. Um, so then you compare like with like. So I will never move around before, before the breezes start, and I'll never move until the breeze-ups are finished. Um, I may choose to watch them all from home. Um, I may choose to go to the sales and watch them on the racetrack. It depends on the number of horses that fit my criteria, i.e. the Craven Sales next week. There's 120 horses breezing. I think 30 are fillies, so I'll probably watch them from home um, because a lot of the time at the sales, if I, if I wouldn't, I'd be sat 
waiting for the next filly to come along at the kind of one in four. Um, and also the amount of horses. So there, for example, I've got three days, 60 horses sell on day two, 60 horses sell on day three. So I've got plenty of time to get myself organised. Other sales, for example, the Guinea sale, there'll be 200 horses breezing. It'd be more of a 50-50 split, and there I'd want to be there on site. So as soon as the breeze-ups are finished, I'll then go and start viewing the horses because 200 horses are going to sell the following day. Um, and um, I can't give too much away, but in terms of watching a horse gallop, um, the most important thing is the horse puts its head down moves well looks like a racehorse so it's got a good action um it's coordinated it's not hanging it's running in a straight line it's professional um it's come from a good consigner a good consigner in terms in terms of a consigner who's not done too much with them not done too little with them um i, I remember a couple of years ago i joked to consigner with three some horse at the craven and they all started on one rail and finished on the other rail. Um, and they obviously showed themselves poorly and, and, and sold poorly afterwards. Um, I think there was one or two good ones in there, but they certainly didn't look it on the day. Um, times, we studied the times. I break the times into three sections, two to the one, one to the line, then the line thereafter. Um, I remember a horse called Libertarian, it was the slowest to breeze in the Craven sale one year. He recorded the 120th fastest out of 120, um, but he moved like an absolute machine. Um, obviously, he, he debuted over 10 furlongs at Pontefract, so two furlongs at the Craven meeting was not going to be his bag. Um, he's one that got away um, and one that I wish I'd bought. Um, I think if he appeared at the sales this year, I would be more confident in my own ability and I would have put my hand up because it you, ha you have to be pretty brave to put your hand up and buy a horse that's pretty slowest out of 120 horses. Um, the times are important, but the times tell you pretty much how the horses would run in the next two months. So a horse that breezes quickly, as long as it comes out of the breeze sound, will be a horse that you could then go and expect to race on a race track over five, six, seven furlongs and expect it to run well, in theory. It doesn't happen all the time. Also, breeze sl breezes slowly. If it breezes slowly and it's got a fast pedigree, you're possibly in bother. If it breezes slowly and it should breeze slowly, then you'd forgive it a little bit more. Um, after all the horses have breezed, I will then analyse the times. Analyse in terms of, I'll put them down in Excel. I'll sort them there by various criteria. Um, I'll watch the breeze again and then I'll start, go and start viewing the horses. Any horses that are lame after a breeze, um, if there is a, a lame issue, you'll try and identify what the issue is. Um, any horse that's sound, I'll see it jog up um, on the morning of the sale and possibly the, the, day, before, the, the day of the breeze as well, um, depending on uh, time and number of horses in the sale. Um, but it's, a lot of it's common sense it's coming down to looking at who's breeze horse is generally run well on the track afterwards and then identifying individuals that breeze well perfect power breezed really well last year but the horse that breezed the best at Doncaster in my opinion was Twilight Jet sold for 200,000 uh, Michael O'Callaghan uh, went to the Breeders' Cup won the Cornwallis Group 3 
serious horse. Um, Michael O'Callaghan did a great job with all his horses he got from the Breezes last year. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I spotted that Twilight Jet was a serious horse, but I think probably 99 out of 100 people there should have spotted the same thing as well. Um, never feel under any pressure to buy horses. Don't don't feel as if we have to come away with a horse, but also sometimes have to be ballsy enough to not just come away with one or two. But if there is if there's a day where there's bargains to be had, crack on and, and put my hand up and buy four or five. I remember a dirt Doncaster breeze ups a few years ago, and there was literally nobody there at the breeze ups in the first two or three hours, and. That was to say, I forget what I bought, but I should have bought more that day. Um, it was a day where bags to be had. Sometimes at the craving, you can have a, a day where the first day is like everybody's watching everybody, each other to see what who's doing what, and the prices are low, and then everybody cracks on and buys more on the second day. Um, it just kind of depends who's in town um, and the mindset of the buyers and the sellers. Um, if anybody wants to come to the breeze, that's more than welcome. Um, We've got a bit of, um, yeah, if people want to contact contact me or Ollie, uh, Ollie, me or Harry, and, um, we yeah, we, you can come and join me at the Breeze Ups. Um, you can get, get a catalogue, bring a pen, bring some warm clothes, chair preferably, and, um, yeah, watch, watch the horses breeze. Um, kind of leave me in my zone, and then I've generally after the horses breeze, I'll go home, um, I'll go to the hotel, and, digest all the data and then the following day start again and I'll go and look at the horses um, and then see how they come out of it and then go to sales see how we get on um, I've generally got a long list um, and then I've got rankings within that list um, fast response last year was probably towards the top of the list and she made 13 grand I think she did or 11 or whatever it was um, you need a bit of luck you need to, I need to be, find horses that everybody else isn't on Um there was a Ribchester filly at the Arcana Breeze up that made 500,000, went to David Simcock, and it was okay, but I couldn't see how it made 500,000, um, and time's shown that it, it wasn't worth it now when it wasn't worth it then either. Um, but the Breeze was something I, I, I've done well in the past, and I, I'd have a huge amount of confidence. I've got, I do one or two things that I don't think other agents and buyers realise that's important, and that possibly gives me a bit of an edge. But that's not something I'm going to broadcast on a, on a podcast because I want to keep my edge for as long as possible. 